Gratitude That's my everyday What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Excited you're here and excited to share this conversation with all of you. Today's guest is Trey Hardy. For those of you that don't know this man, he is actually one of the best athletes in the entire world. He is a decathlete, former decathlete, has since retired. And we get into that in the conversation today because we have a lot of similarities in the journey of being a professional athlete, reaching the pinnacle, and then what it's like to transition out of that, which I think is you know, really relatable to what we're all really going through right now, which is this massive transition of life and what it's like to navigate the waters of transition and really questioning these deeper stories of who we are, how we show up in the world. And it's a really powerful story, really powerful journey. And uh, Trey, as a decathlete, which you don't know, if you don't know what a decathlon is, it is a track event, 10 events, literally to show who the best athletes in the world are. Um, and Trey's story is incredible. He's one of the best in the world. He competed in a couple Olympics and he ended up winning the silver medal with a torn tricep, bicep. He had surgery 10 months before the 2012 Olympics and ended up winning a silver medal. Just really, really impressive career. Uh, but what's more impressive about this man is not what he accomplished on the track with his physical stature and ability, but you know, just how he's navigated the more challenging aspects of life. And you know, towards the end of the podcast, the second half of the podcast, he really talks more about the emotional journey of navigating what it's like to be one of the best in the world and to have to let go of all of that uh, to come back and be the best father, be the best human, and to show up and really be the best version of himself, which I know is the journey that we're all on. Um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to dive into this conversation with me. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Um, we do have bonus material, an extended episode with Trey for you premium members. If you're not a premium member of this podcast and you want to have access to bonus episodes, solo casts, and uh, a wide variety of other content, and just being able to connect with me through our app on Circle, uh, you're going to want to check it out. Um, the bonus material that we have in this episode is really good. Um, it's loaded up there. It is. There's a link in the show notes. It is $7 a month and you get access to all this extra content plus access to ask me anything and really connect with other people around this podcast. Go check it out. If you don't feel called to be a part of the inner circle community around this podcast, a really great way to support this podcast is to leave a five-star review. And if there's anything in this podcast that you think might have a positive impact on someone you know and love, then go ahead and share it with them. It goes a long way into supporting my vision of you know really sharing getting people to be more curious about their own stories and to show up and make this world a better place. It's, uh, it's going to take all of us. And uh, I'm really grateful all of you are showing up for yourselves and diving in and supporting this podcast. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by The Heart Collective. You can visit theheartcollective.com. That's H-A-R-T. We are focused on this deeper healing journey. And like we talk about in this podcast, healing really takes place within community and the Heart Collective is a community focused on supporting those who are focused on reaching and following their inner calling. 
We are relaunching. We have a bunch of new offerings, workshops, courses. Uh, we're hosting a bunch of retreats this year um, and really excited about just where this vision's going. Um, we are now opening it up to anybody who is feeling called to develop the tools, the resources, and the community to go on this inner journey of you know healing and growth and connection. So go check it out. If you want to join the inner circle, it's $29 a month. Uh, there's also a bunch of free resources on the website and our app, uh, a bunch of yoga, movement flows, guided meditations, um, challenges of the week. I'm just really, really stoked about where this vision is headed. And I would love to see you on the inside. Go check it out. Let me know what you think. And uh, I'll connect with you guys on the inner circle. Thank you all so much. Uh, I also want to share with you guys about the upcoming retreat, January 27th to the 30th. It's a men's only retreat. There are 12 spots available. It's here in Austin, Texas. It is called Embodiment Activation. And we are going to be coming together uh, and processing and learning and growing together. Um, What we talked about in this podcast is actually what it means to embody. And it's really about um, embodying that loving presence with ourselves and being able to connect in a deeper way with those that we love. And in order to do that, we must remove the masks that are holding us back and clear the fog that is covering the lens in which we view reality. And a lot of times it's these deeper unconscious patterns and stories that are affecting who we are and how we show up in the world. And so at this retreat, we're going to really dive in, connect on a deeper level and, um, yeah, I just really, really passionate about bringing men together to show up and uh, reach higher levels of self-awareness and embodiment in their own lives. If you're interested, there'll be a link in the show notes uh, with more information. And uh, I hope to see you all there. Uh, there's only 12 spots. So if you are interested, reach out, check it out. And uh, yeah, without further ado, here's my good buddy, Trey Hardy. Enjoy the show. Trey Hardy, what's up, brother? Everything is up, dude. I'm, I'm nothing, so, nothing is down. Nothing is down. Everything is up, and I, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you coming on. It's a, it's a rare occurrence you get to talk to uh, one of the best athletes in the world. Former, yeah, former. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think my my old joints and muscles and sinews can still do the things they used to do. <laughs> but yeah, former, and, and like, yeah, the further away I get from it, the like, the cooler that was. I think it'll be. My kids will think it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. It's like one of those things that when you're in it, you don't really give yourself the credit. And then on retrospect, looking back on it, it's like, whoa, I was, I was doing that thing. Right. It's kind of like climbing this unclimbable mountain when you're doing it, there is no like determinant of success other than sometimes maybe winning Super Bowls or something like that or, or winning medals. But at the same time, you can always look back on it and feel like you, in the moment, you're like, I could, I could have done better. Mm-hmm. I could have done this thing better. And then when you get back to base camp, when you get back to kind of the real world and you've retired, you look back over your shoulder at this mountain. You're like, whoa, I got pretty close to the top. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I mean, then, then there's that appreciation, right? Yeah. It's fascinating, man. Let's, uh, so, so you were a decathlete. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I, uh, obviously as an athlete playing uh, in the NFL, as a team sport. And I always wondered what it would be like to be kind of in that individual sport. Like really, it's all about you and competing and, and where you want to go is where you're going to take it. Yeah. So I'm I, trying to relate it like the, when you get like 
pro football focus rankings or whatever it is and you get graded mm. uh imagine if that was the metric of how you got paid and determined success so you're in there and you're playing this game but it is it doesn't matter what the tackle or the or the the guard or the quarterback it doesn't matter what any of them do it matters what you do on every single play oh man that's so crazy you're, so you're in the game and you're getting like you're under a microscope and there there is no more um objective sport than track and field it, it's cut and dry i mean it's black and white and it is the the origin of competition it is i'm gonna get to the you know from point a to point b faster i'm gonna throw this thing farther i'm gonna jump higher like all of those things are indisputable so it's this microscopic like crucible of you know nowhere to hide yeah, it's crazy because as a, as a team sport athlete, I think one of the reasons I was able to push myself past what I thought was possible, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, was because I was doing it for something greater than myself and I was doing it for the guys next to me. Like they are what allowed me to really push it. But to do it competing against these other guys, but doing it yourself, I mean, I just like the mental challenge and having to show up and focus in that way. I mean, what was that like? That's a really interesting uh perspective that you have on the team sport thing you know the first thing i ever thought about you know looking back my you know affinity for track and field versus team sports was always like referee based and coach based it was like coaches that were making indiscriminate decisions based on an emotional feeling towards an athlete or like that guy's got a bad attitude or whatever and like kind of a lack of understanding, you know, through my my adolescence and dealing with coaches and having referees decide games where it was so you just didn't like that. It's terrible. Yeah. Like I like a team that plays well enough to win a game and then it's decided by a bunk or missed opportunity. Like the Saints in the playoffs with the missed PI. Yeah, like, that was ridiculous. That is why I gravitated toward track and field because of that that subjectivity that that inability to control my own destiny mm. but when you were talking about playing for your, your teammates and that that brotherhood there that's what the that's what a training group feels like the places mm. that you have to go and push yourself um you can't do it alone you yeah. need a you need a group of men and women and 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 a team and, and physiotherapists and coaches and um you need those people to not only hold you accountable but to toe the line with you, you can't run fast by yourself. Mm -hmm. You need someone to push you and to be there. And um, there's there's that team part of it, like the accountability and showing up. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's your name on the line. Yeah, I mean, was there any politics? Because that's one thing you said, like the the referees and the, and the coaches. Like I dealt with coaches that I didn't really like, you know, kind of the egotistical, egocentric, like kind of, I was never a brown noser. I hated being told what to do, which is why I'm excelling as an entrepreneur now. But when you're in a team sport, like you have to show up and the coaches do have a lot of say of like who's on the field and who's not. And you have to impress the right type of people. So there's a lot of politics involved in that kind of team sport. Was it similar with track and field or you kind of just went and competed and the best person was out there? The only place that really exists is in like relay selections. Mm. And then it's kind of like, who's the shoe sponsor? Who's got the most money on the line? Um, and it's on the periphery. It's like, it's not the, the number one and number two guys. It's like the third and fourth and the relay alternates. It's mm -hmm. like, who's got the best relationship? Who's going to do what we ask? Who's not going to care what leg they run? Um, there's a little bit of that there. And there's always every Olympics or every world championships, there's always some controversy, whether it's the men's or the women's side, there's going to be some 
person who probably doesn't deserve to run in the final that's going to run in the final because maybe they're a big name mm. um but yeah that's that's the only place it really exists and maybe it exists a little bit in the subjectivity of like people's contracts with shoe companies mm. which you know depending on what event you're in it's a it's a great living um but yeah it just that i think that was why i, I gravitated toward there because i i was a good athlete um, maybe was a little lacked a little direction and, and focus um, in in like middle school and high school, but was a, a really good athlete. I was always the fastest kid in school. Um, things came to me pretty quickly, but I didn't have like a consistent you know pattern of like showing up to practice, like maybe with the right intentions or mindset. With this idea um, that we're all going to get better today, it was kind of like I love playing basketball. Let's play. Yeah, go the, compete. Let's go compete let's fuck all the play. practices exactly well not some not like that but more like when are we going to scrimmage yeah like the practice was like okay okay let's do the drills okay free throw okay we're going to shoot free throws this period whatever we're going to run suicides whatever when are we scrimmaging let's scrimmage and let me man up this guy like let's, let's do yeah, this let's play this the part. game i really struggled a little bit with that and it ultimately uh, still to this day don't know why but i was cut from the basketball team i was the only guy on the team that could dunk i was the fastest kid in school like i was like four years later, I was the world's greatest athlete, right? There wasn't, it wasn't like this, whoa, Trey really grew into that. It was, I was a good athlete and was cut. And that's what spurned this, like, man, this, the emotion that surrounds the the sport and the politics, like you're saying, like, I don't want to play that game. Mm. I, I want to control my own destiny. And then that turned into a love of, of like seeking mastery and the love of trying to reach human potential, like maximizing what my body was capable of doing and that i grew into that like i grew into this the more i competed the more it was apparent like wow i've been given some gifts here let's see how far it goes yeah did that moment when you got cut from the basketball team have a huge impact on where you got in the in your life like what comes to me is michael jordan didn't he get cut from like the jv basketball team and then it kind of like sparked that fire that obviously became one of the best in the world if not the best yeah and i think about it all the time i i'll never forget being in in the gym being told, you know, to, I'll never forget this. The coach said, Trey, we're not going to need you this year. He pulled me aside. This is, we're, there, it wasn't even like tryouts. It was like our first Thanksgiving day, the Thanksgiving day tournament, like kicks off the season. And it was like three or four days before that. And he just said, we're not going to need you this year. And I'm a junior. So I'm just thinking I, I I'll play JV. Okay, cool. Like uh, this, this is embarrassing, but mm. I'll, I'll play JV, whatever you, whatever you need kind of thing. It didn't occur to me that it, he literally meant get, get out of the gym. Like we don't go be, a, he, his, his words were, no, we're not going to need you at all. Go be a pole vaulter or something. Wow. What, what, what do you think the reasoning was? Is he just not happy with who you were? Was he didn't like that you were doing track as well? Or how'd you make sense of it? I didn't. Yeah. And it, and it, and for a 16 year old kid to try to make sense of that is it was devastating, like legit devastating. So I walked to my car in like, just, I was dumbfounded. I didn't understand. Like I, and like teams practicing, like I walked through my, my practice with my friends and just walked straight to my car and started bawling not from like embarrassment, but just that devastating emotion, almost like with the loss of a loved one. Mm -hmm. Like it just was, my heart was in that sport. 
Um, and I just didn't understand. And there was that like, not no, like, yeah, it was just devastating. I didn't want to go to school the next day. Um, my parents met with the coach, like without me to figure out, they, they thought I was making like, you must have done something, Trey. Yeah. And he, he told him he didn't do anything wrong. We just don't need him. And like parents of other kids, parents of like my, my friends asked him the same thing had and thought about boycotting the games. Like it, it was a big deal. It was inexplicable and to this day doesn't have a reason. Now maybe he's protecting me for not saying the reason, but the full circle, we can we're gonna skip through all the the nonsense. I ended up being the best pole vaulter in, in history of state of Alabama at the time. Um, like because I went out and used that just like the Michael Jordan thing. I could have gone back in the gym and not I would have been Michael Jordan, but <laughs> I I would have probably if I had put the same amount of time, effort, and energy into basketball that I did pole vault that that spring would have been a good basketball player yeah. but i used it and to spite that that mfr i i was like i'm gonna be the best pole vaulter this a-hole has ever seen mm. right and so i i remember using this like it's terrible to do over long periods of time but using that external motivation to just stick it to this guy yeah i'm gonna stick it to him and then full circle the inaugural sports hall of fame class of my 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 town in little little suburb uh in alabama i was inducted alongside of him oh wow so i made mention um he in his speech he said something about me like you're welcome like for what it was and i just wanted to say like i I think i remember i got up there and said something along the lines of like congratulations to i won't say his name to coach blank but um despite cutting the world's greatest athlete you still managed to make it into the hall of fame like despite <laughs> despite thinking that the world's greatest athlete didn't have a spot on your on your JV basketball, yeah, you're still team, here. You're still here, so you're doing something right. Yeah. Oh man, I love it. And it's you know all you can really say is thank you because that's a, obviously a big part of your story. So yeah. let's um let's talk about the best athlete in the world. So you know the decathlete, um, decathlon. Let's talk a little bit about what that is. And obviously, I mean, after you explain it, I mean, it is ten events. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you are competing with this wide range of different track events that really is for the best athletes in the world. Right. Like it's been for millennia since it was began. Like this is the thing that yeah. the best people in the world show up and compete at because it's 10 different events and the, the winner is going to be the best athlete. Yeah. It started in, in 1912. The uh, gosh, I'm going to ruin the king of Prussia or or Finland or one of the ki- Swedish king. I mm-hmm. think the Swedish king looked at Jim Thorpe after he won the all around and said, you, sir, are the world's greatest athlete. And I think to this day, everyone recognizes Jim Thorpe as probably one of the greatest athletes that's ever lived. Mm. You know, that was back when amateurism was, was the key to being able to compete there. So they weren't allowed to train. They weren't allowed to practice. It was show up and rock and roll. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. There was like limits on how much you could uh, professionalize the, the events. So this so, is like literally raw athlete. So he ability. showed up with like, someone stole his shoes someone he like borrowed a bunch of stuff had mismatched everything and kicked everyone's tail mm. and so yeah he was the world's greatest athlete and so that started this that that moniker like that crown that you get to wear and then the u.s has had such a great history and rich tradition i think we've won like 23 maybe i'm gonna ruin it 23 out of 28 gold medals have been from the u.s uh since that date um there were periods you know dry periods but we've historically been really good mm. like really phenomenally good 
And it's not so much that the best athletes gravitate towards it. It kind of selects you. You know, you it just takes doing one decathlon to where you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And there's you either have that that itch, that like competitive itch, like I get to I get to compete in ten events instead of just like one. This is cool. What are the what are the ten events? So the first day, it's the hundred meter dash, uh, the long jump, the shot put, the high jump, and the four hundred. And you get a, a night's rest, which you know, depending on where you are, it's not rest at all. Um, and you start the next day with the 110 hurdles, the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, and then you end with the 1500. And so it's an aggregate point scoring system. So it's not like I got first place in this, second place in this, and first in this, so I get this many points. It's just performance-based. So uh, you run 10-5 in the 100, you get 900 points. And someone runs 10-4, you know, 10.45, they get 920 points. So then there's a 20 point thing. And that happens across all 10 events to where after the 1500 or even like before the 1500, you know, like, okay, Joe, you've got 8,120 points and I've got 8,220 points. So that means you have to beat me by like 18 seconds in this 1500 in order to beat me. Mm. So that's that, that drama that comes down in the 1500 is just this race, this point A to point B, you got to beat me by this much. And that's the, that's kind of the drama and how it unfolds historically. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So let's back it up. So, so you went and you obviously pole vaulting was your, was your thing. How did you get into the decathlete? And, and then when did the dream for going to the Olympics like kind of take shape? Yeah, we can, like, it's a long story. We'll, we can fast forward through it. I ended up being a really good pole vaulter. Um, Mississippi State was recruiting one of the best, you know, female athletes uh, in Alabama and we were friends and she just introduced me to the coach at a track meet. And she's like, Hey, this is, you know, Steve Dudley from Mississippi state. And I was like, Oh, Hey, nice to meet you. And I literally five minutes later went and set the state record in the pole vault. And he's like, Hey, let's chat. You know, <laughs> um, before then I was going to walk on at Auburn or get like a, a full ride to Arkansas state, you know, but I was, I was calling coaches. I was like, Hey, I, my name's Trey. I run track. I pole vault. And I, you know, setting the state record in Alabama is not, not a big deal. Like I still was probably ranked 30th in the country, maybe not 50th in the country. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't a good by standard. Yeah. I wasn't jumping high, but I was just the best Alabama had. Right. Um, and even then at the end of my senior season, my buddy set the record, like my buddy broke, broke my record. So it wasn't a bit, I was like number yeah. two. Yeah. Um, and so got to Mississippi state cause it, it was just one of those things that felt right. You know, I would, I woke up and it just felt like, Hey, you know, mom, I'm going to go to Mississippi state. It's, it's two and a half hours down the road. I like the team. I like the coaches. I like all everything about it. And so I got there, got to school and they're like, Hey, we're going to let you train for the decathlon, you know, not just pole vault. And I was like, Oh, what, what, uh, what's, what's in that, you know, and ended up hating it. Just hated all the training. Cause I didn't know what it was for. You're just training like an animal breaking your body down mentally, physically. And it just was the worst. And it was stuff I had never done. You know, I just pole vaulted. Like that's not a, it's a physically demanding sport, but not like intense, like throw up everywhere. And then there's so much technique with each event that you have to learn. So it's like you're training for 10 things. I can't even imagine. And you suck. I sucked at everything except pole vault. And I was fat. I I was actually really fast. So I sucked at everything except running and pole vault. So and the running, like 400 meter, like I sucked at that too. It wasn't like this, oh, I'm a, I'm a gifted 400. I sucked at 400. It's like, so it was just 
you know, six months of just hating everything that we are doing. And then I did my very first decathlon at the, at the Texas relays here in Austin, um, in 2003 and I did it and I did okay. I scored 7,156 points. I don't, I, that's the, I'll never forget it. And I just had a good time. It was fun competing and it was fun looking at like a senior who was like way better than me at everything, but looking at that going, I could do that. Mm. Okay. If I just make it to my senior year, that guy was scoring way lower than I'm scoring now. If I can just make it to, to the next thing, the next rung, the next deal, I, it's akin to golf where you can shoot a really great round and then three putt the 18th and go, oh my God, okay, I, I'm going to do it next time. Next time's going to be better, right? Mm -hmm. So no one's ever had that perfect decathlon. No one's ever had that, that 10 event string of just great stuff. Um, it's hard to do mentally. It's hard to do metabolically. It's hard to do programming wise, but just sometimes you get lucky. Um, and lucky means you have like six good events, right? Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I became addicted, very, very much so addicted to it. And it gave meaning and purpose to the training and just started to, to have more of a long, long-term look at this. And I was just thinking about maybe my senior year. But the very next season, my fifth or sixth decathlon ever, I, made, I was at the Olympic trials. Like I scored, I backed into some really big scores. Like again, I was fast, I could pole vault. So as the other stuff got better, I qualified for the Olympic trials. And again, the same exact thing happened. I'm looking at these grown men making a good living, um, going, getting to go to the Athens Olympics. So I'm like, I, I could do that. I could do that. Those guys are like four and eight years older than me. I could do that in four years. And then I transferred to Texas after some stuff at Mississippi State, like coach leaving, they cut the men's indoor program and was in line. The coach I had here had that same vision. He saw that in me and said, hey, you're going to be this, but it's going to take time. And here's how we're going to do it. So rolled out that plan. And yeah, after the Olympic trials in 04 and meeting my, my coach, Mario, it was, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is what my, this is what school is going to be about. This is what my time in Austin is going to be about. And I'm going to go to the Olympics. That was, that was it. And what was the Olympics that you were, you had your eyes set on? Like what year? 2008. 2008. You know, so I went to the 04 trials in my fifth decathlon um, and didn't do well there. Like I was a little kid, you know, 20 years old. Um, and then won the NCAA championships the very next season at Texas and didn't score very well, but still felt like we were moving in the right direction. And then my senior year at Texas, I, I had the third best score in the world. I, I set the collegiate record. I was, you know, athlete of the year. And was, it was like, here we go. Here we go. Got, you know, the next year signed a con my first contract, which was basically let me buy, you know, ramen noodles and pay, for, pay my rent. And I, and I bought a bicycle so I could bike to and from the track. Nice. And it, and it was pretty meager, but it was exciting. It was, I, I've done it. This is, the, this is the next logical step. And then the next thing is going to be getting, getting ready to go to the Olympic, getting ready to make an Olympic team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what was the Olympics you ended up going to? Because it wasn't 2008, was it? It was 2012? No, I, yeah, I went to 2008. So I got, okay. I got second at the Olympic trials. I beat the guy who I was looking at four years ago. I beat one of them, um, Tom Pappas. He was the 2003 world champion, world's greatest athlete. I beat him at the Olympic trials. Um, I was coming off a couple of weird injuries, but set a, set a personal best, had the second best score in the world and was just like, oh my goodness, I could, I could go to this, this games and, and win a medal. You know, um, and then again, 
we could do a whole podcast on how I messed up in, in 08 mentally and physically, but it was a learning experience. You know, imagine like you start playing football your senior year of college. And then three years later, you're at the, you're starting at the Super Bowl, and what that entails, like that whole two weeks of media and the pomp and circumstance, and you get to the game, and it's like the fourth quarter, and you look up, and you're like, "Oh my God, we're down three touchdowns! How did this happen?" And then you blink, and it's got, it's done, and you, wow. yeah, it's a, it's like that's kind of the equivalent of what I would say. Was there ever a moment like that for you where you were like, you kind of wake up, and you're like, "Oh my God, how did I let this happen?" Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty big moment. Like, it's a quite a long story, but I mean, I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, one of my biggest turning points in my entire career was my third year, and this is where I really like decided it was a big turning point, not just in my career but in my life. Because um, my second year, I finally earned a starting job. I was playing right guard, which is out of position. I was mm-hmm. naturally a center, and the starting center at that point was like a 14 year vet, and so he was set. His contract was up the following year. And so I had this idea that, you know, the following year, I'm going to be the starting center. I'm going to have my own 10, 15 year career as the starting center of the Falcons. It's my time to shine. And that offseason in the draft with the first, our first round pick, we ended up drafting the best center in the, in the draft. And so it was like the rug was ripped out from under me. Nobody communicated. This is a hard thing about the NFL is like all the politics. And like, I felt so betrayed. Mm-hmm. I felt like nobody was communicating with me. And I went into this like dark spiral. So I went in to training camp that year. Um, thought I was going to be the starter to barely making the team. And I was just in this woe is me attitude, like really pointing the finger, like these coaches don't really get it. Like I'm so much better than this guy, you know, just complaining and ended up not dressing that entire year until um, I ended up getting suspended and ended up for taking Adderall. So I got suspended for four games. So it was just a really challenging year all the way around. And when I came back from that suspension, I was like, okay, I need to refocus. Like I'm like letting this go. I'm squandering this opportunity. And when I came back, I'll never forget. It was Christmas Eve. It was like week 16. We were about to be the number one seed in the playoffs. I hadn't really dressed all year. And the coach and the GM called me into the office and they said, they sat me down. They said, Joe, we're going to let you go. And uh, they ended up cutting me. And while I was suspended, they brought in this, uh, this other practice squad guy to take my position. And so for one week, they were able to have, instead of 53 on the roster, they had 54 and they had to make a decision, either me or this guy. And so they ended up cutting me. And week 16, <clears throat> week 16, we're about to be the number one seed in the playoffs. Yeah. And um, our rosters locked in the playoffs too. Um, they can make roster moves if people get hurt and stuff. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of roster spots. Right. And so I was sitting there and, and they, when they said that to me, I'll never forget. It was like the first time in my life I was just flooded with regret because in that moment I knew I'm, I squandered my dream. I was going to be on the street without a job and nobody in that building would, would have blinked an eye would have cared. Mm. And so I was always like, they're going to, they're going to know, like at some point they're going to give me an opportunity. And then all of a sudden they cut me and ended up speaking my mind and like, um, you know, communicating with them how I felt about it. And, you know, thank God something in them decided to keep me on the roster. And what what it was is I, I basically told them if the starting center gets hurt in the playoffs, would you want me starting for you guys? Or would you want this other guy starting for you guys? And it's fascinating that, you know, in a billion dollar organization, they don't actually think about the product on the field, but I guess they thought about that. So 10 minutes later, after I went through the whole cut process, they called me up and they said, Joe, we thought about what you said and we're going to keep you on the roster. And actually two weeks later in the playoffs, I was starting as the back or not starting, but I was the backup and I was dressing for the first time that year. And so Jeez, from what, that, a, what a sale, oh, like, man. What, what an in the moment <laughs> sale that what I'd say sailed, like, I don't want to under, undercut what it, what it was, but what a 
like a bet, like a back against the wall. Yeah. For the first time I like spoke my mind, I was like, wow. yo, listen, like I am really good football player. And you guys know, like when it comes down to nut cutting time on the field, like you want me out there and not the other guy. And the other guy didn't have any starting experience, all this stuff. And, you know, they think about all the other stuff that goes into, you know, being an athlete and building a team. So that was a huge turning point in my career. So they ended up keeping me in that, that off season was one of the best of my life. I was like, I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to do what I need to do mm -hmm. to compete. And I'm so grateful that happened because I ended up playing another five years, ended up starting like another 40 games, like another three years, ended up going down to Tampa. And so, yeah, that was a, a huge, huge turning point in my career and in my life because I realized that I can no longer play the victim, not just in football, but in my life. And I think that's a huge awakening that every single individual has to go through at some point in their life is I'm going to become the creator of my reality and not mm -hmm. the victim of my circumstance and create the life that I want to live. And that was a huge moment in my life that, that taught me that. Yeah, I'm curious to the way I think about that. You're either for, you're either looking forward or you're looking backwards. Mm -hmm. So looking backwards, you're looking at at your 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 replay of your life and looking at all the influences, and it's easy to to figure out that blame. But but in looking forward, you're creating. You're looking at at all the multiple paths, and you're seeing outcomes at, at in these paths. And like one path is is apathy, and and like you can look behind you and be like, ah, I did that path. I didn't, that was not good. But looking forward, you can create that thing. You mm -hmm. can cut through the forest and the wilderness and create your own path. And you can build things moving forward, like chest forward with your hands. Like no one builds things behind them. Mm -hmm. And you can do that, that, that move, right? That thing. And that's, I honestly went through the same thing where I was using this external motivation from this coach that cut me and was just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him versus this internal thing. Like, wow, the human body is capable of some pretty cool stuff. And I've been given these these things let's max out mm -hmm. let's max this out yeah and yeah. i told myself i was like i'm never like there's going to come a point when i decide that i'm not going to be playing football anymore but it's not going to be because i didn't give it my all and like i'm going to go give everything i can to to live this dream out and not squander it and ended up playing another five years and when my final you know played my final game my final year it was like okay now it's time like i'm choosing to walk away it's not because anybody told me i'm not good enough which is really powerful. I, it's so powerful, man. And what an, it's, that's the sleep easy. Like you get to sleep easy, man. Like there's those times, those, that thing that you probably regretted about that season, but man, you made it right. You were given that opportunity to make it right. Mm. And to sit in, the, in this space now, re regret-free, honestly, because you can erase a lot of that regret by, by what, you, what you did that day in that office. Yeah. Speaking your mind and giving just getting that other chance. Yeah, football. It was one hell of a journey, man. I lost my starting job five different times for different reasons. Yeah. And uh, yeah, every single time it taught me about who I am and I had to shift my mindset, my perspective and go out there and like reinvigorate my my energy and be like, all right, I got to go do this thing, prove myself again. And that was one of the reasons I didn't walk away. I was like, I'm tired of having to prove myself to the world, to all these people. Mm. Uh, and we'll get into the transition because that was a whole, whole nother journey. But let's get, let's kind of finish. So 2008, you didn't meddle. You would. I was in metal position, and I know hided in the pole vault. So get from go from third with a couple of good events left. I was I was a great pole vaulter. Should have made up a ton of ground. Pole vaulting is your event. Scored uh, zero points and uh, went to last place and 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 DNF'd. Didn't finish the competition. Was wow. de devastated, crying under the stadium. Again, not ready for it. Not mentally or physically prepared uh, for what that was. First time out of the country was Beijing, China. Wow. Like it was, it was pretty wild. Again, so what is your mindset? Like what, 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 what's the internal dialogue when you go through something like that? 
I, I mean, you're exposed out there. I, I mean, both physically and emotionally. I mean, I'm what you're wearing spandex and you just look like an, an ass. So uh, track and field's one of those things where, okay, we're about to see what kind of preparation you've done. We're about to show me your work. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, it's like building a house. Show me, show me your work. Yeah. How um, good is the foundation? How hard you've been working? Yeah, precisely. And there's no real shortcut. There's no, there's no magic pill there's no anything i mean i again not talking about anybody specifically but all those guys that use performance enhancing drugs and anabolics and steroids and all that stuff it's not just like a pill that you take and you wake up you're busting your ass and so even if you're not taking a pill we're going to get to see the work you put in and mm-hmm. how smart you trained and what 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 you've put into this and so for me, it was all, it was really all mental. Mm-hmm. You know, I came home and we had a, we had a come to Jesus moment with my coaches and I, I took, you know, three and a half or four weeks completely away. Like, don't talk to me. Don't want to see you. You need to reassess what it is that you want to do here. Do you want to, do you want to do this? Like really do it? Or do you want to just say you went to the Olympics? So from that moment on, I, I began to professionalize everything in my life and, and, and yeah, made, made it a business. My mm-hmm. business was, was decathlon. And with the focus on the 2012 Olympics, like no. we're going to make this thing go. Focus was world championships. Okay. It was, I was in metal position and I wasn't at, you know, physically wasn't at my best. We know what, what, you know, you, you make edits and you say like, okay, the programming was this. Maybe we changed a couple of things here and there and we're going to be even better. And it was, I was focused on the next year. I, I wasn't going to let four years slip by with like this slow preparation. It's a long sales cycle, yeah. four years, but each year builds on itself and I wanted to be ready for 12, but I wanted to win then. Okay. Yeah. So what was that four years like going into the, the, Olymp- the following Olympics? It was, I mean, I was the best in the world. Mm-hmm. The very next year I won the world championships. I had the third best score in us history. I was young. It was like, Trey, you're back, baby. Trey's the next guy. It uh-huh. went, it went straight on into Trey's the, Trey's the best in the world. Like, holy crap, can you believe what he did in Berlin? And it was a dream meet. Everything was going well, but I had prepared really well. Mm. You know, my, my mental game was strong. I was having fun and it was, I was sharp. Yeah. And so then the next year is an off year. There's no world championships, but I, I, I was still. There's world championships every two years? Yeah, every odd. So, mm-hmm. you know, 9, 11, 13, 15, 17. Okay. Um, and so I was still one of the best in the world. I ended up getting second in the indoor heptathlon because it's kind of, it's, there's a little bit of different, I wasn't a good thrower or, or jumper, uh, but got second at the world indoors. And then 2011 won another world championships. So I was one of three people to ever win back to back or win multiples. Um, and was just, re- everything was like 2012 is my, that's my, that's going to be my game. That's going to be it. It's going to be Trey Hardy, redemption story, all that kind of stuff. Man, isn't it? Well, because I think that's such a powerful lesson of what failure can teach us, you know, in, in such a, like in an environment like athletics, but just for anybody listening to this, like failure is what teaches us who we are, what we're made of, and can be the fuel to really accelerate us into what we want to create in the world. It, and it's so hard. Like, mm-hmm. it's really, really hard. You don't learn a lot. I learned more from 2008 failure than I did 2009 cloud nine. Like when it like, ah, man, it was easy. You know, mm-hmm. like everything was going well. I didn't learn anything from that. I learned more from like the, the mishaps and the things that went wrong. And it's really hard to do it really deep, to really look at yourself in the mirror and really debrief. I think that's the, that's the big boulder in the way for everybody being able to do that 
is is that serious reflection and serious um uh like grading of of your own psyche and your own you know decisions and being really hard on yourself that's it's hard to do and no matter who you are like as a parent like i know that the the like kind of the shtick and the thing you say is don't be too hard on yourself sometimes you have to be if you want to be better you kind of have to to look at yourself and 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 be mean mm. a little bit you yeah know? take inventory of where you can be better and you're the only one that knows right i think that's one thing when i was sitting in that seat and i was filled with regret i was like oh my god like i like everybody else might not know like that i could have given more but i knew i knew that i wasn't giving it my all and that's why i was filled with regret because like this is the only person I can blame is myself. Like if I was giving it everything I could to make that dream a reality and I got cut, it's like, okay, maybe it's my time. But I knew I could have given more and like I could not live with that. That is so challenging. So four years, we're going to 2012 Olympics. You end up winning a silver medal. What was that like? And what was the journey like going into that? Because didn't you get hurt a year before? Yeah, so winning winning the world championships in 2011, I ended up shredding my my throwing arm, shredding my elbow. I ended up having reconstructive surgery, like mega Tommy John, like crazy, like they couldn't find the UCL, like my ulnar collateral. Just snapped right off. It was like it was floating around somewhere in my elbow. It was it was gnarly. Um, Ended up again all all the things that were in place for me to be able to do well that year were in place. My, my mom was a controller at uh, St. Vincent's hospital, which is right above champions sports medicine clinic, which is where Dr. James Andrews worked. Mm-hmm. She just walked downstairs and talked to his assistants and said, Hey, my son just tore his UCL. The Olympics are in 10 months. Can't wins the next availability. And they called her within like an hour and was like, it was like on a Monday or Tuesday. And he's like, can you be here Thursday? So I flew in, got it done by the godfather of orthopedic sports surgery. The guy that put Drew Brees' arm back together. Yeah, he did my knee too. No, sh- yeah, reconstructed no already. Yeah. So yeah, same guy. Zippered me up really, really well. And it was just all the things that got put into place. And that started that, okay, the same thing that you talk about with giving your all and, and, and the things that are kind of within your control, you can control effort, you can control showing up and you can control doing that. I, I've given a couple of speeches on doing the unsexy stuff that, that builds the platform to operate freely and at a, at a high level. Um, I went from world's greatest athlete, winning a world championship to not being able to move my fingers in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and, and going through you know, rehabilitation after major orthopedic surgery, you know what that's like, where you're just, you wake up out of anesthesia, can't move my arm, can't move my fingers. And I'm just crying. Like my career is over and the yeah. next, next day still can't do it. So at my first protocol doing this stuff, because they had to transpose my nerve, the nerve had to, had to reestablish connection. It had to learn how to refire and the motor patterns and stuff. And so I'm literally just touching my fingers together. Mm. Like I'm touching my fingers together and that's all I can do for a month. And all of that stuff, all of that, then, you know, a friend, mutual friend of our Boyd Vardy, like he, he's the line trackers guide to life guys. Check out that book. It's, it's phenomenal. It's a good one. He is such a great storyteller and there's so many great lessons in, in Boyd's book. Um, but I'm telling Boyd this story and he's like, no, mate, you're, you're a Puma. You need to get out there and you're hunting. You have to hunt. And now you're being asked to just touch your paws. And, and, and that's a terrible South African accent. <laughs> But he, 
it was it was that and i was like yeah you know that what that was it but looking back it was i just wanted to have no regret i wanted mm-hmm. to be able to look back on that year and say there was nothing else i could have done to 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 get ready you know it was it was a long shot and it probably shouldn't have happened that i made the olympic team at all it was 8 months after tommy john surgery i was able to do a decathlon but all I wanted to be able to do was look back after the Olympic trials were over is just to look back with no regret, look mm-hmm. back. And I, I could control my effort. I could control showing up. I could control, you know, everything except, you know, ultimately this healing. Yeah. Was it going to bake? Was it going to cook in time? And you, you know? don't, you don't just get invited to the Olympics. Like the whole process of even getting there to have an opportunity to compete like, isn't that a process of like going yeah. to different meets beforehand? Like, how did you actually even get to a point where you got invited because of that 10 months out? Yeah, you have to have a score. You have to have, have a, a qualifying score. And fortunately, the previous year's world championships kind of falls in that one year window. So eight months later was the Olympic trials. I had a score from the world championships. Pre, pre, pre-injury. Pre-surgery. Oh, wow. So that got me into the trials. So I knew I was at least going to be there. Okay. And then you have to be top three at that track meet. It's, to go it's, to the Olympics. It's the toughest team in the world to make. Everyone's on their A game. It's, it's, we're the best country in the world. If you're not top three, you're not on the team. There is no like, there's no like flyer like, oh, but I was really good last yeah. year. No, sorry, show up. So what's the, what's the mindset going into that experience? You got your injury. I mean, is there any doubt or are you just completely focused on like, this is my last shot at doing this thing? We're, I was fortunate because we were in a situation where it was just going to be me and Ashton Eaton were the two clear, I mean, Ashton was clearly going to win the Olympic trials. He ended up setting the world record at that meet, but all I, I knew the minimums. I knew those like minimum uh, markers in every event. And I went into the meet trying to hit minimums. It was like, let's just get through this. All we have to do is be top three. And I'd thrown the javelin one time um, and it, it didn't go far and it hurt. Um, so we tried to figure out how to brace and tape my elbow up. And I threw the jab like 150 feet at the Olympic trials, which is nothing. I mean, it's like high school, you know, freshman girls throw that. It's not far. And you had to throw it. You can like not have a score on an event. Correct. And that was the I, one I that points. was cost in the, the mm. elbow. So that was the big one that you were focused on. Like, I just need to get a score. I mean, a month before that, we were like, okay, how far can I throw left-handed? I mean, and we had been practicing left-handed stuff too. Like we wow. had been ready to like, plan B the heck out of this and throw left-handed and get like a hundred points and just move on. But my other events were solid. Everything else was kind of moving and, and I didn't have any bad events, but I got to the, yeah, Olympic trials first throw. I throw 51 meters and that's no joke, like 19 meters, le- 18 meters less than my best throw. Mm-hmm. Like eight, that's a, lo- that's a long way. That's like 60 something feet, right? That's well short. And I flipped out. I was screaming, hooting and hollering because I knew that was enough. I knew it was enough to make the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the moment. It was like, I, I, it's indescribable the amount of gratification that, con- that came out of that, that throw and that track meet. You know, I, it, it was overshadowed for me. I get to tell my kids I was a part of Ashton Eaton setting the world record. That was kind of cool. I mean, it was like the who's who of decathlon. People were actually there because it was the 100 year anniversary of the decathlon and all the US gold medalists were there. Like even like Bruce so Jenner. Big back, moment. Yeah. I mean, everybody's there, right? So, Super cool, ultimately amazing gratification, but it was just about that same mindset that you have when you get that second chance on on your career of, I'm going to look back on this with no regret. So when you threw that javelin and it landed, you knew in that moment you were going to the Olympics? 
was it that kind of yeah wow yeah i still had to run the 1500 but i was well well above the next guy like there was no one was going to catch me you know ashton won the meet by like 800 points like no one was going to catch it like i was i was secure in my little spot Mm -hmm. and it was the lowest score i had had since like my junior year of college it was a terrible score but i that was all i needed going to the olympics minimums yeah man and then got to london and was just playing house money it was like oh my gosh you want to talk about i got i get a second chance for olympic redemption and not like olympic redemption go win a medal but like don't fuck this up like don't mess this up yeah just, like, i mean being there like what was the difference between being there the second time and the first time and just like what the first time allowed you to you know, just to be there and being soaking it all up and not be overwhelmed with like all of the pressure. Yeah, it's a good opportunity. I think anybody can do this. When you're walking into something with the wrong mindset and the wrong reticular activation where you're looking at something and looking for reasons for stuff to go wrong or you're looking for, you're looking for problems. You're an answer looking for problems, right? That was me in, in 2008. I was, there was, I was neurotic. I had these like I got to have this. I have to eat this. I have to have this. It's, timing has to be perfect. Nothing's perfect. You're not going to control anything. There's a bunch of red tape. And so going into London, man, I was, I was looking for joy. I was like, man, I mean, it, this is amazing. Instead of like, okay, where am I going to sleep? How am I going to do this? I don't want to be his roommate. I want to be here. What am I going to eat? It, it was just, this is awesome. I can't mm. believe how amazing this is. Like I, I had, you know, a beer the night before, like I was, just soaking it all in. Living in the moment and mm. again, wanting to just look back on that time and not regret my attitude, not regret my my existence in that in those spaces. I wanted to be like happy. Yeah. It, it was it's hard to kind of describe because it's intense. It's and being intense. present with the experience too, because I'm sure that first one, you probably were just so like in your mind, it's probably even hard to drop in and remember what the experience is like because it's just like so much going it's on. over. Yeah. yeah. And it, 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 you blink and you're like, wait, what did, when did I get here? How did, how did this happen? But London, I, I remember everything. I remember training camp. I remember all the stuff that led up to it because I was just loving it. Mm-hmm. And we trained in Germany. I love Germany um, for training camp. I speak a little German. And it was just this like beautiful little town that we stayed in. And it was, again, the old me would have been like, this track is inadequate. They don't have enough, you know, they don't have a pole vault pit. They don't have this. How am I going to train this? How am I going to... It was just me loving it, loving being there. Mm. You know, I was like, hey, this good place got good beer. It's got a cold tub. We're good. We're good. Mm. You know? And so what was it like winning the silver medal? I, uh, the first thing is it's, I'm so fortunate that Ashton Eaton was American because he won the gold and I got to hear the, my anthem. Mm. I got to stand on the podium and not listen to something else. Yeah. And it was really special to do it with him because we were first and second. And it just felt I, on the right side of the, you know, imposter syndrome where you're just, I can't believe I get to be here. Like I shouldn't be here. It was, it was the same feeling, but gratifying. It was the same, like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this, man. Like, the, like God is so good. I can't believe that this is my story. I can't believe of what I went through and I'm standing here and I have a medal and it's life-changing like for the rest of your, your life, you're this, whatever in football, I mean, Super Bowl winning, whatever, yeah, like yeah. whatever it is like pro bowler, so-and-so hall of famer, so-and-so like it's it, the, but the medal is this like earned thing. It was just amazing to hear my anthem, 
I, I, I didn't even have the energy to cry because I was just so like, it, it, it was wild, man. And it's so hard to even articulate now. Um, but the gratification is kind of indescribable. Mm. It's kind of weird. Like the birth of a child is amazing and you're overwhelmed with energy and the, that room is so special and there's so much love. It's that with just like less bodily fluids, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice though. Uh, I love it. So redemption story. You go to the London Olympics, win the silver medal here, the national anthem. You're standing on that podium. You, you did it. I mean, you, you're an Olympian. You're an Olympic medalist. And I guess the question is, like, how do you navigate life after that? Was that the last big moment of your career? What, what was the com- competition like competing after that in track? I, yeah, to, it, to sum up like the rest of my time, I retired five years later. And those five years were kind of like, womp, womp. Yeah. Like, and not womp, like, not like disappointing. I would get to the biggest stage. I made every world championship. 9, 11, 13, 15, and 17. I made five world championship teams, which I think me and a couple people have ever done in any event. It's, wow. it's hard to do. But I would get to those big stages and there was just beyond my control, stuff would happen. I sprained my ankle, uh, cramps. I'm doing the same things I always did. Like my, my regimen and stuff was pretty, we dialed it in, right? We won world championships. We won medals. Like we know how to do this. And uh, back spasms, um, like nerve damage in my back, like all this stuff started to just like pile on. And my last, it's kind of summed up. My last race was at the, the London World Championships in 2017. I'm in third place, which I shouldn't have been there. I'm 33 years old. I'm, I'm the old guy now. Um, and I'm in third place and I'm, my day two is okay. And I'm dealing with injury and stuff, but I crash out of a hurdle race and I've never crashed out. So I, I got DQ'd and it's never happened to me in my entire career, but that was it. And I knew going into that, it was going to be it. It was kind of like you playing. That was your last event you knew? That was my last, yeah. Last last track, last track meet. And so I was, I was already mentally prepared that year going into the U S championships. This is my last track meet because I didn't think I would make the team. I ended up winning the U.S. championships. Like it just fell into my lap and I'm like, okay, here we go. So I think I won. I ended up winning like four U.S. championships. I was, I was ranked number one in the world four times. And um, it, it, again, on paper, it's, it's like it, it's, I didn't do well on paper, right? On paper, there were a lot of DNFs and a lot of, that did not finish, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, Trey didn't win a medal at this meet. Trey did this. Trey did this. But I can look back on it, no regrets. Mm. Train my ass off. I did everything right. I, was, I, I wasn't burning it at both ends. I wasn't sacrificing anything I wasn't supposed to be. I was, I, I, yeah, I was doing everything right. So it just was how the, the, the cards fell, mm. you know? And what was that process like coming towards the end of your career and finally making that decision? Because I think some people, you know, in my line of work with football, I think the game is usually taken away from people before they're really ready. 
I think I'm, I'm a select lucky few where I decided to walk away on my own terms. And there was a part of me that was really excited about that. I mean, I played eight years in the NFL. I played 16 years of football my God, entire a, life. That is a long time in the NFL. Man. Yeah, focused on this one thing. And there was a part of me that like, the, the way as at, on reflection, like looking back at my career, it was almost like this self-created prison of my own psyche because I didn't know who I was outside of that. How could I, right? And I had to build up this identity of who I am to even have an opportunity to compete at that level. And so it was necessary for me to create this story of who I am best in the world at this sport and continuing to focus. And I just got tired of having to prove myself. And, and you know, just to, as you know, as an athlete in that elite level, you literally have to just find micro percentages ways of getting better. Cause if you don't, you're going to fall off the cliff. And so just having to prove myself and work and I just got exhausted. And so there's a part of me that was really quite excited about, okay, what is it like outside of this? What, what is the freedom from this game like? And I really wanted more than anything to experience that, to know who I am without this thing that had defined me for so long. And then about three weeks after my final game, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. And I felt this, literally this void in my heart. It was like this physical, deep, visceral sense of, of like mm. grief. I was grieving the loss of who I was and I didn't know where to go, who I was and how to navigate life. And I'm so grateful for that because it's taught me so much and we can get into the journey. But what was that process yeah. like for you coming towards the end of your career? Was it something you could prepare for or were you ready for it? Or No, no one's really ready, right? Mm -hmm. You think you're ready. And then like you talked about it, it it's like the, the passing of a, of a loved one, of a close partner, right? That void, um, no matter how well you prepare, it's there. And, and that's why I think it's, it was put under a microscope during the, the past couple of years with like lockdowns and things like that, how, how fragile we all are, you know, how, no matter how prepared you are, this is, we're, <laughs> we're like walking on, on spider webs through all of this stuff. But mm -hmm. for myself, I, I was from the kind of the school of thought that, you know, Steve Prefontaine quote to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Mm -hmm. And I was also taught by a couple of parents who were accountants to, you know, squirrel away some nuts for the winter. Um, and so I'd given myself, I was fiscally very responsible. So I knew when I was done, I had a super long runway to be able to have time to figure it out. But at the same time, I was not prepared. Um, I didn't, but plan B is something everyone always talks about, you know, have something to fall back on. I think before we started, you talked about the NFL stands for not for long. And so they preach plan B, but I think you and I share this sentiment. Plan B felt like cheating on plan A. You mm. can't be the best in the world if you're looking at plan B once a week or, yeah. or you can't. Because you'll take it because it's so fucking hard to grind and focus on plan A that if you have any inkling of doubt or like, oh, there's another way, like you're just naturally going to gravitate towards that because of what it takes to actually excel at plan A. And that's why there's not a lot of people that do it. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't care who you are, when you, when you step away from it, it's really, really hard. And so for myself, the way I describe it, I had spent my life and career building this super yacht. It's an awesome boat. Like it's got tons of bedrooms for all my friends and family. It's got, a, I can play virtual golf. I can do anything I want. I've got a great chef. It's got an amazing motor. Like we can go anywhere in the world except when you retire you don't have a rudder mm. and you are adrift and if you turn on the motor you don't know where it's going to go 
you know, and that was that, that lack of, I don't know, not necessarily plan B, but I was the best in the world at something. And that was what I was accustomed to. And that identity that, that, that brought, no matter how grounded I, I was, no matter how, how hard I worked to not let that define myself, I stepped away. And now I'm the worst in the world at literally everything. I, I don't have those, the, you know, tactile skills. I'm, my, all my friends, I mean, I'm in my mid thirties. So everyone in my circle has have careers. They are yeah. moving through life or starting, they've started their own business. And now they've, you know, Hey, we just closed around $22 million round to, for my company. And I'm like, do you guys need a custodian? <laughs> and, and as, as grounded as you can be, and as, as like humble as you can be, that's a hard place to start from. And it's not where you want to start. It's not just like, yeah, I'm going to, I started making sandwiches at Stubway. You know, I didn't need to do that. So I ended up going to business school um, here in Austin, got my MBA because I thought, okay, if I just get the skills to better recognize opportunity, I'm going to know it immediately. Like it's just going to float by. I've got a great network here and I'm just going to see it. It's going to be there. I'm going to seize it. Right. At the same time, my family's growing. We've got two daughters at that point after I graduated um, business school, and there still wasn't the thing. There still wasn't that opportunity. And I was trying a lot of different things, but I wasn't like, wasn't earning a bunch of money. I was getting enough. There were things here and there. And again, winning a silver medal, I, I, you give speeches and you kind of do that thing. And I fell into to announcing for TV. I work for NBC Sports and I do, got to go to Tokyo. I do all the world championships. I do a bunch of other of their, of their properties. And it's awesome to be able to stay connected with the sport. But it, it's not that thing where I know I want to do this the rest of my life. And it's, it's what's going to be the next decathlon in my life, right? It's just an awesome, awesome job that I love doing. Um, and so there's, you float in and out of those, the peaks and valleys and, and on all fronts, like, I, I, geez, there's so many, things, so many things that make, uh, make you whole. Um, and, and family being a big part of it. And I think that was the biggest, the hardest thing is like starting as a new dad, you're the worst dad. Like <laughs> I don't, first kid, I don't, I just didn't have that. And it, I don't, I don't think it's talent. I, I think it's a, it's a product of how you were raised. And I was raised by a single mom and then had a stepfather. And there was always a weird dynamic of him. And he did a fantastic job navigating it. His, his name is Francesco Mario de Cesare. Uh, we named my daughter after him, Francesca, and he did a fantastic job navigating it. But it, you step out of the, the gate and you're, you're a, yeah, I was a bad dad. Mm. Like it wasn't that I wasn't there. I just don't understand babies. There's not, it's a lot of one way stuff. And yeah. it, I was, I was used to sacrificing and I was used to all that. And then we had our second kid and I still didn't understand how to guard the first kid, but now we've got two and they're two girls and they're great and they're awesome. And there's no amount of, you know, things I wouldn't do for them, but it was still, I'm really still bad at this. So I was bad at that. And then on the work side, there was still nothing that was like, yeah, I want to do this. And then there was this like, could I, like it floats through your head, like, could I strap on my shoes again? Could I, could I still run? Yeah. Like, always going back to what's known, right? Could I do that? That's mm -hmm. still an option, right? And everyone's just thinking you've got it all sorted out and you're just trying to do your best and you end up like, uh, we'll, we'll just fast, fast forward to it. 
I'm curled up in a ball in the corner of my daughter's room crying, and I don't know how I got there. This was, hey, this was a year ago. Goodness, mm-hmm. yeah, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary, three and a half years after I retire, where three years after I retire, where I've tried everything and nothing, nothing's doing it. The void is there, and there is this lack of worth. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I never assigned that my net, my worth to what I, my, I accomplished on the track. Cause like I said, the last five years of my career were, were not great on paper, but I, I really, I, I didn't define myself as a dad. I didn't define myself as a, as an entrepreneur. I didn't define myself as a landlord and none of it was fulfilling that like absolutely none of it. And there was that hole where I, I felt bad for feeling bad. Mm. I think I'm spiral like you can't ever get out of it, right? I think we we get there a lot of times where we know we have it good. And I think that's the whole thing. Like I was raised with if I didn't like what was on the dinner plate, it was like there's starving kids in Africa. So I felt bad for not liking the the meatloaf or whatever Mm -hmm. it was. And so I I'm in there and I'm self judging and I'm 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 not like self-harming is not the right word, but I am I'm punishing myself. I'm judging myself and punishing myself for feeling the way I feel because I've got it so good. Mm-hmm. I've got we have awesome house. We get to live in Austin, actually just a couple blocks away from from your place right here. And I got great kids. Everyone's everyone's healthy. Like God, we still I still have grandparents. We still have family. We still talk. Like we we could do anything. Like we could travel the world for years and be okay. Like we don't need a thing. And I felt bad for feeling bad. Yeah. I, I shouldn't feel this way. And that, that man, I, was, I got deep. I got really deep, like deep enough. I couldn't get out of it. I was talking to psychiatrists and psychologists and trying to figure out, okay, do I, I, need, I need to get some blood work done. I need to figure out what's going on in my brain. I'm like, do I have CTE? I mean, pole vaulting is a lot of micro trauma. Like it's a lot <laughs> of trauma. Um, like I landed uh, several <laughs> tens of thousands of times on a pole vault pit. What's going on here? I, yeah. This isn't right. Didn't I, feel like yourself. And you can't put your finger on it. Mm. I, I could not point to one thing that I knew would help. And it, and it was just really, really bad. I was having these like moments and episodes where at one point my wife told me to leave and not leave like, don't want to see you again. You need to go get a hotel or go someplace and be alone for a couple of days yeah go figure this shit out we don't we don't need you i don't need you i got it she's like i i got this but you need to be alone and you need to figure this out because you are bringing us all down wow and it was not and that wasn't even i wish that was the moment i wish that was the come to jesus thing where i'm like okay okay and i come back into the house and everybody we're good hey i fixed it we're good and that's that you know i think as as men and and I want to be a fixer. I want to fix things. And, and not being able to do that, again, makes me feel terrible. And being a bad husband makes me feel terrible. And being a bad dad. And it was as spirally as spirally can get. It was an unstoppable object mm-hmm. that was moving through space and time. And I didn't know how to, how to fix it. Didn't yeah. know what to do. Had nothing to point to. Um, it, it, I just lost. I, I wasn't grounded, right? It was, it was really bad. And I wish I could say that was the last time it happened too. It happened several more times. Yeah, it's a process. Thanks for sharing that because I think it's a powerful point for people to know that this internal landscape that we live with and these psychological, like the importance of having 
deeper meaning and purpose in life. And no matter, you know, objectively having it all together and having accomplished everything you'd ever put your mind to and dealing with these mental and emotional like swings of like, what is the purpose of life? Like, who am I? How do I actually navigate this thing? And the importance of that internal journey, I think that's just relatable to so many people and, and what, you know, this journey of life's really like and not to really look and judge and compare yourself to others because everybody is dealing with something on the inside and especially being at such a, a pinnacle in life and having it all together and, and really being on the stage and accomplishing everything and then it all being taken away. Like, how do you navigate that? So what was the process like of coming out from that and, you know, figuring it out? You said you saw a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. therapy, like what was the thing that kind of allowed you to be more grounded and what has that process been like over the last year? And is it something that you've worked through or are you still very much in process? Yeah, it, it's a practice. It's mm-hmm. always something. I don't, no one's ever done. No one's ever got it, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's there's some forms of like of meditative practice where there is no end. There is no winning. You don't get it. Like you don't get to, there's no finish line. So the journey of mastery is something you have to, I, I deal, I'm not deal with, but sit in and live in that that thing that there is no winning here. There is no finish line. I just need to get a little bit better each day. And 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 it's not like a daily task. I wake up and I'm like, I'm going to get better each day. But I sat in with with a lot of meditation. Talk, I talked to God a lot, like a lot, a lot. That's where I ended up finding myself. I did a lot of retroactive parenting to myself. I, I talked to my five, six, and seven-year-old self deep in, into these, you know, hour-long meditations that I'm parenting my little child, right? My little young Trey telling him it's going to be okay and trying to undo a lot of the con- the constructs that were governing how I was looking at my family and things like that. And that mm. gave me a lot of a lot of the most value out of that. So I, that helped me stop judging how I was feeling and accepting how I was feeling and just that, it, okay, this is how I feel right now. What can I, what can I do preemptively and not like get ahead of it, but just what kind of practices can I institute in my life to, it's, it's hard, man, it's, it's still hard to like enumerate, like what can I do on a daily basis that can just give me a platform to operate, that mm-hmm. can just give me a basis, just like track and field, I doing the little stuff the unsexy things, touching my fingers together that gave me the platform that when the time came, I could operate at a high level. Mm. And there, it, you, there's so many facets of your life you can do that in, but it, it is this thing that we're still doing just to this day. It is not a, not a win-win, but I'll tell you what, I've never been probably happier than I am right now I started looking same as like the first Olympics to the second Olympics. My, the aperture that I look through life now is, has totally changed in a year's time. Um, I'll never forget. There was this uh, mutual friend of ours, uh, John Callahan, Cal, everybody calls him. And um, I was, I reached out to him because there's this an underwear company that wanted to do a photo shoot and they wanted a bunch of like, do you know a spot that has this and this? And I was like, man, Cal's backyard does. And I call mm-hmm. Cal we kind of reconnect. We had fallen out of communication uh, over the last, over COVID in the last year. And he's like, yeah, bring it, bring all your kids. And, and we kind of reconnected through there. And he's like, hey, you know what? Some guys come over for workouts. You should come. And I was not in a spot. I hadn't worked out since like 
I stopped, right? And so I retired and it just wasn't for me. My back hurt. I'd had procedures prior and I was like, I don't know if my back's going to hurt. He's like, just show up. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to show up. And I started moving my body a little bit, connecting with other people and really connecting with Cal. And I remember walking away the first extra, like the first little group, there's like eight of us. And I just said, Cal, thank you. Thank you so much. And I gave him this hug. It was probably like an inappropriately long hug. But there was something in my body that kind of woke up and was like, whoa, hey, we needed this. We haven't been doing this. We needed this. And that was the first kind of step into that. Mm. Um, and then I think the next workout and the one after that, uh, he brought some feel free to a workout and I didn't try it. And then the next workout, I, I got it and I brought it home. And it's it's this kava and kava root and kratom based deal. It's like a mood elevator. It's a euphoric and it's it's, awesome. it's really good. It's yeah. completely awesome. Uh, but I remember go, I went to Zilker Park and I was going to just hang out with my daughters and play soccer. And I took one and it was the best 90 minutes since I had retired. It was the best hour and a half I, I had. The best since retiring. Not mm. just like the best time with my kids. It was the best time I had ever had. And I'm like, whoa. Life can be like this. Mm. That life can I can feel this way. And I began this, this, this heart opening of myself. You know, it had been three years of just maybe heart hardening and, and closing off and feeling like I'm never going to figure this out to, oh my goodness, if I can just take off the, the, this, you know, lens that I've been looking life at, I can, there's, there's so much out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that, man. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the power of community, right. And, and mm. being around, especially men, like we just, it's hard to be connected and be vulnerable with other men. And when you find that and you're able to be around and you're just able to remove the masks of like, I'm sure everywhere you go, it's not just your own identity, but the identity of how other people view you. And so there's masks that you're just wearing and being able to be yourself and understand who you are on a deeper level, that authenticity and be able to show up around others in community. Like that is the most profound healing that can take place. Um, I'm very much relate to that. Um, talk about the, the, the healing journey as far as reparenting yourself. I thought that was very fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of different modalities of, you know, in our psyche, we have every experience we've had growing up shapes the lens in which we view reality and it has a huge impact. And so to reparent yourself is to go into those parts of yourself that show up in the world and maybe have been wounded or hurt and being able to give yourself the the love and the care and the intention, attention that you needed in those moments and reparent yourself so that that part of your psyche isn't showing up and feeling hurt and then you know getting triggered in the world i i i would have said the that's that's it where did that, that come that, from though like where does that where does that did that just naturally come through to you or is no. that like a modality that the therapist or psychiatrist no, told you about that, or did you learn about it yourself that community at at Cal's house, I ended up being paired with a therapist and he's a, and like body energy, like mind, emotional intelligence, meditative practice guy. And I sat in with him, did one little free session. And then I think the next day or two days later, I was just like, how much do you want? I'll pay, I'll pay you to, to, to teach me this, mm. please teach me this. And so I think maybe even like the third or fourth session, I'm, sit in my office crying like 20 minutes in just crying and then about you know another 20 minutes later i'm talking to myself as a child and and there wasn't a I, it, 
reparenting is strong because I think it has a connotation of like my parents did it wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just doing what they were taught. Like yeah. they were parenting how their parents parented and they turned out all right. So this is going to, Trey's going to be okay. And that's, that's what you do as a parent. Yeah. You do your best. And that's all you can ever ask is they were doing their best. Yeah. But for myself, some of that stuff was showing up with my children and it wasn't good. And I, not that it wasn't good. It just wasn't who I wanted to be with my yeah. kids. Wasn't what it could be. Right. As far as yeah. how good kids I'm get. like, why do I care that they, that, you know, spilled milk or something? Like, why do I care that there's milk on the counter or water on the counter? Like, why do I, why, why do I do this? Why does it matter? Because it ultimately doesn't. None mm-hmm. of this matters. Just the health and wellness and the kids need to feel love. Yeah. And so that's what I went back in, in, in those meditations of, of reaching out to, to little six and seven and eight year old Trey, just letting him know that it's okay. It's okay to mess up. It's okay mm. to, to, to break eggs. It's okay to drop a glass. It's okay to, to, to leave things as they are. And, and there's love, there's love here. And your, your mom and your, your stepdad and your dad love you, you, they don't love you when you're good more than they love you when you're bad. They don't love you if you make a mistake any less than if you you knocked it out of the park. There there's love that exists here in this in this world in this family for you. And I mean again, I'm I am just I probably lost like a pound and a half of tears. Like it was <laughs> it's very it's a very powerful modality to be able to dive deep into wh- why you are the way that you are because there are like specific instances that I would find myself in there. You know, I wasn't going in trying to go back in time to this one time, this one spot. There's only, there might only be like two of those things that I even remember from my yeah. childhood, but I would be there and I'm looking at my younger self and all of a sudden I'm transformed into, you know, Christmas of 1991 or something. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've, I've not, I didn't even know I had this memory. Mm. Whoa, whoa. And then all of a sudden the very, I mean, that, you know, the next day I'm finding myself in the moments of, of okay, I, the old Trey probably would have done this. Let's, we're going to, pra- this is a practice. Let's get better at it. And let's start to reparent my kids and, mm. and make sure that they understand. And maybe they will when they're older, they're going to have it better than I had it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that in and of itself, God, the, the healing that comes out of that. Okay. The spiral's not going as fast now. Let's okay. create a little bit of space, right? You can take a breath. Yeah. Okay. This. Okay. We're getting. Oh, there's light at the end of this tunnel. Oh, there's progress. Oh, we're getting better. That's addictive. That's incredibly addictive. Just for, I think for me and my personality of, of competitiveness and wanting to be better each each and every day, that was the first step along the way to, mm. to just okay, okay. Now they're not that it's a boogeyman, but now I I understand why I'm doing some of the things that the way that I'm doing them. And I, if I can correct this, man, I can correct anything. Mm. I can figure this out. I can figure out why I'm I, the husband I am. I can figure out why I'm the friend that I am. I can figure out why I, uh, you know, drive my car the way I drive it. You know, like I, you can, you can troubleshoot it. Right. And not to say that there's this like definitive answer, but point me in the right direction and I can go to work. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And the importance of self-awareness, right. Cause we talked about even with my story of, going from being the victim to the creator of my reality. And we have all of these unconscious, subconscious patternings that show up and run our life. I love the, the quote, I don't know if you're into like Jungian psychology, but the quote by Carl Jung that says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. 
And so all of these patterns that we have and the way we show up, it's, it's all of our unconscious patterns. We think we're so um, aware and we are in such choice all the time. And until we start actually excavating the unconscious and understanding why we do certain things, we can't actually shift it. And so going back into these experiences that shape the lens in which we view reality, able to process them. And I think for me and what I've learned, the only way to really heal is to feel. And so you mm. actually have to access those points. It's not, you can't think yourself into shifting a story. You actually mm. have to access the deeper part of your unconscious, which is why, you know, having a therapist or someone help guide you into it. And then when it comes to the surface, like bring on the tears, like boom, all that energy is able to release. And in that moment, you have more space. And the next time, instead of being reactive, like with your kids or something, they go and you're like, oh, and you literally can catch yourself. You're like, oh, I have a choice here. I don't have to get angry at them. I can take a breath. I have different tools. And that's, everything yeah yeah 100 percent. i think there's a there's a really cool book and it's it's biblical principles but there you can look in any religion in any kind of um like philosophical realm and they're present and it's called hung by the tongue and it is very powerful for what you're ingesting and what that what that builds up into your heart and what whatever your heart feels is based on what you you've ingested like the, those constructs and those things that that raised you and changing that that input and changing that and talking through it and, and opening up to those things can then repattern your brain and repattern your network and repattern how you speak and repattern all of those things. But it, it's that it's manifestation. It's speaking things into existence. It's those kinds of things that I I, I think a lot of people get hung up on. Well, like I'm tr- I'm trying to speak things into existence and man, I'm trying to manifest and get prosperity here in this direction. I'm doing my best but there's not a lot of work behind it. It's a Mm. lot of air. It's just a lot of talk. That's not really that deep down, like heart opening work that Mm -hmm. needs to occur for that in order for order to that, that energy and that, um, that manifestation to occur. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's all about embodiment, right? Like how can you actually show up and embody what you're trying to, to, to become? And it is a, an inner journey. Um, I'd love to to just jam out about, you know, you mentioned God and obviously everything that you've been through. You know, I truly believe that the importance of of believing in something greater than yourself, however you label that, right? You know, I, I'm not religious. I've studied all these different types of religions and understanding they're all just fingers pointing at the moon. But I truly believe that there's this importance of connecting with something that is greater than the self because to understand even the psyche and the, the ego and, and who we think we are can't be everything. There is something outside of it, something greater than it, something that has created this experience. What is your connection with that thing that is greater than the self? And how has that come to help on your healing path? Ooh, <clears throat> that's probably a whole other podcast. I mean, that's, yeah. Well, we'll definitely yeah, schedule we'll, it in then everybody we'll get ready. Do it. Um, but I, I mean, I'm born and raised in Alabama, um, Christian family, grew up going to church, uh, church of God. So it's very, not like the church of God that's like rattlesnakes and, you know, snake venom stuff, but like just biblical principles, like mm-hmm. things that are, that, that were found in this amazing book that is the Bible parable or not there, there are those things that point in a direction of, of, I don't want to say how you should act, but a way in which to live and what the, the person and the way that Jesus lived interact, like, like hanging out with prostitutes, feeding the poor, the meek, all, all of those things are, are that like, I thought the, what would Jesus do bracelets? 
were like when they came out super cheesy. But honestly, that's if everybody could do it and everybody could like be in, I say everybody, but like treat others how you would like to be treated. And golden rule. The golden rule. And that's, that's present across the board. All mm-hmm. religions yeah. have that. And you know, it's funny is I find, because it's about embodiment, right? Like I've, because I grew up Christian too. And I used to actually have a lot of resistance because I, I was naturally curious and I had a lot of questions around the religion faith mm-hmm. and didn't really vibe with me because a lot of those questions came unanswered. And so I went on this journey and I'm really grateful for it because it allowed me to go on this journey of seeking truth for myself and connection to God in my own way. And full circle came back to actually learn about the story of Jesus and who he was rather than just like what the church taught me and really connected with who he was as a man. Like you said, like he, he was the embodiment of loving presence and the way he showed up in the world. And I just find it so fascinating that most religions, I'm not saying every person that's religious doesn't connect with Jesus in this way, but what I found in my experience is they're actually, they're, they're missing the point of, you know, what Jesus is actually embodying and teaching and yeah. what the church is telling them on how to live. And there's a lot of judgment, a lot, a lot of shame, a lot of fear. But if you actually come back and connect with the story of Jesus and what he was doing and how he was being and how he was showing up, like that is so beautiful. A hundred percent. I think it's the difference. And I think they get conflated a lot of times what religious means versus what a person of faith means versus um, the kind of defining them as like more dogmatic principles mm-hmm. and, and um, what religion is just in, in general. And I think in where Christianity were myself, similar situation and it not grew up and like got away from the church, but I've, I've developed a very personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of gets, gets missed it's not this like set of rules it's not just okay 10 commandments check 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 it is to to me the gospel is is action to me the gospel is embodiment it's it is not oh i tithe 10 percent. i do this and mm-hmm. i do this and I'm, i always show up on wednesdays and i sing I sing the songs and it, it is it it's the work and mm-hmm. it's the work that I, I describe and talked about earlier like it's it's not just faith it is the Faith without works is death. Like it, it doesn't exist without those things and the embodiment of that. I think that that's where, that's a hundred percent where I'm at right now. And and what's kind of missing, like what's miss, what was missing in my life was that an embodiment. Mm. You know, it wasn't. You know, there was paper gospel, and then there was like when people see Trey, they like they see the gospel. And I, mm. I I've used this analogy quite a bit and. Some of the businesses that I'm I'm working on, but the we can be a lighthouse or we can be a tugboat, and um, the that that analogy is used a bunch of times in the Bible. You know, the city on the hill, the salt of the earth, and all of those things. Uh, Explain that analogy a bit for us. Yeah. The difference between a tugboat and a lighthouse. Uh, so let's paint a scenario, and there's a ship way out to sea maybe a mile, two miles off the coast, enough to see what's going on. And there's a harbor. The harbor, everyone in the harbor thinks it's super great. Everyone in the harbor is having a great time. It's full of life, full of energy, full of, full of love. It's a, it's a great place to be when you're there. So there's two types of ways for ships to know about the harbor. One is the tugboat. Tugboat's going to come out. It's going to throw its ropes around you. And it is going to drag you into the harbor whether you want to or not. Mm. The other way is the lighthouse is just going to spin around. Every couple of seconds, it's going to shine a light on the harbor and show what that's about. 
And the people on the boat are going to be able to see that, know exactly what's going on in there through the lighthouse shining light on it. Mm. And then ultimately, when they make a decision whether to go in the harbor or not, it's of their own volition. And eventually, that route's going to pass by again, and the lighthouse is going to be there. It's not going anywhere. It's going to shine a light again. They're going to get a chance to look again. And that, 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 that lighthouse being able to shine a light on how great it is in the harbor is going to lead people into the harbor. Mm. no one's going to be dragged into being religious mm-hmm. and no one's going to be dragged into living a fulfilled life. No one's going to be dragged. No one gets dragged into heaven, yeah. right? No one gets dragged into whatever, whatever you want to call that afterlife, whatever you want to call, you know, this post mortem existence on this planet and being a lighthouse is kind of a, a pillar of my existence now, like being a lighthouse and not a tugboat. No one's, no one wants to be dragged into anything. Yeah. But and to me, that's the gospel. That's what the that's what Christianity and any religion is all about. Like there is no conversion. There is no nothing. You are yeah. you are attracted to this this thing because of the people, because of what you see them feeling and, and existing and their relationships with with others and their families and God and and whoever whomever else they have relationships with. That is, I think, ultimately what the point of it all was right like mm. like you meant like the story of who jesus was as a man was not like this like no 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 like the 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 angry and spiteful god of the first the old testament no jesus was not that jesus it, yeah i it, love that man because like even yeah jesus wasn't saying like you need to follow me or you're going to hell he was just being loving present and he didn't need to tell anybody and i think that's the thing with beliefs, right? Is if you're trying to cha- change somebody else's belief because of something that you believe, they're going to naturally get defensive because they're going to defend who they are to the death. Like mm-hmm. if, I, if this is not right, then that means I'm wrong. And that means all of my beliefs are going to go down the drain. Like I'm going to hold on to them tightly. And so the more you actually try to change someone's belief because of your belief, it's actually going to create defensiveness. And that you're, that's going to be the tugboat trying to pull people in. Mm-hmm. And if you can actually destroy your own beliefs. And this is why curiosity is so important. Like why, why do you believe in a certain thing? How can you get curious and actually not have a belief structure and just turn it into a knowing? And that's where faith comes in, right? Because real faith, I believe, is earned through experience. You can't just like embody faith without going into the world and getting outside your comfort zone and trusting that God has a plan for you and going out there and then being like, okay, I, I, I'm doing this thing. Like, you know, I went through this huge hardship and like learned, but it actually taught me so much about who I am. Thank you. Thank you for this experience so that I can actually embody. I turned out just fine. Like I learned so mm-hmm. much from this. Yeah. So faith and wisdom is actually learned through experiencing life. So you have to actually go out there and earn it by doing. Yeah. And that, I mean, not, not to keep pointing back to the Bible, but the book of James is about suffering and is about what a blessing suffering is because it's preparing you for things later in life. It's preparing mm-hmm. you for you know, the, the quote kingdom, right? It's, it's getting you ready to, to be your best self. Um, and that's the other thing, like if you're scared to have these kind of conversations or scared to be curious, like why, Mm. why? That's where the work is. Yeah. Mm. I love it. Um, you know, kind of just coming, coming to a close, I want to get your perspective because it, you know, we talked about transition in athletics and talked about having faith and, you know, confronting, 
you know, what's going on in the world. It's just very, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of uncertainty and unknown. And where the world's headed in this kind of collective transition that we're going through, it seems like a lot of stuff's getting shaken up. And I'm really grateful that we live in Austin. This is definitely one of the best places to live during this time. But like, what's your perspective? What do you think's going to happen in the coming years, coming decades? And how, maybe for somebody that's listening that might be in a state of fear or anxiety, how can they navigate these these uncertain times of of unknown um, with more peace and clarity and trust? Hmm. I you know not a doctor, not a political scientist. Not, I'm just a guy. I'm a I'm a just a guy. I'm just a, one of the best athletes in the world. I am, former. I'm a guy who is struggling through life like everybody, um, and I can speak to what helps me. You know, I think at first through the start, probably I mean twenty, you know call it 2016 I was way too into news I was way too into like you know we have a rule I've, I've never watched you know CNN never watched Fox News never watched MSN I've never watched cable news because it's entertainment um, and so in in those times there's frustration because there were you know my a representative here representative government all this kind of stuff didn't really embody who I was and if I just zoom out just pull out like the day-to-day stuff and the way social media works, they need, like policymakers need likes on their tweets in order to get on committees. They need attention. And to get attention, you just got to be loud. You don't have to be right. You just have to be loud. And so if I just zoom out and think of it more about, okay, if there were a monthly magazine, a monthly newspaper that just summaried what's going on in the world, would I be as stressed out? No, because like on a month-to-month basis, there's this and this and this and this and this. And I, I just zoom out. I, then I don't consume news in the way that I used to. And then speaking to, to the virus and, and all that stuff, big pillar of my life is like what's you know, whispered in the, in, the, you know, in the darkness will be shouted from the rooftops. And there's a couple of things that are always constant and that's the sun, the moon, and we're all going to know the truth someday. I love that. <laughs> so um, we're all going to know what's going on. Just like retroactively, we all know about Vietnam. We, everyone knows how Vietnam went down, didn't go down, who knew what, when they knew it, what Kissinger was doing. Everybody knows. In that, in that day and age, they didn't. you know. And so we're all going to know, right? And as things get uncovered, Okay, I can't control what's already happened, but now I'm going to know the truth one day. And there's there's peace in that. That it doesn't. None of this. None of it matters. Headlines don't matter. They're all mostly wrong. Mm. Um, they're in echo chambers and pandering to one side or another. And so we're all going to know it soon. I, I say soon. Re- it's relative. But yeah. in our lifetimes, we're going to know. And I yeah. I sleep easy with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that kind of one of the themes of this podcast that we just we just kind of uncovered is, is how can you take your power back? How can you be the creator of your reality, be more in control and not give your power to something outside of yourself? And the way to do that is to take better care of your body, process your emotions, find community, uh, you know, just what you're putting in your body, how you move your body, getting out and getting sunlight. There's all of these things that we know scientifically are going to actually help you feel better, elevate your mood, stay more present, stay more connected. 
And when like we're just living examples, when you can actually start taking that back and taking more ownership and control of your life in the moment, in the day to day, and stop consuming all of this fear and this energy that's mm-hmm. trying to grasp for your attention and grasp for your yeah. just who you are, you're going to live so much better off and you're going to be able to navigate this unknown with so much peace and so much clarity and, and really be start finding the people that you can actually be around rather than getting lost in the sauce, so to speak. 100%. You know, a, a book that, that, that helped a lot too, it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was written in like 1985 by Neil Postman. I think it was 80. It was in the 80s. Maybe mm-hmm. I might have the date wrong. Neil Postman nails it. And it's so, it could have been written a hundred years ago. It could have been written a hundred years from now. It still resonates with what is trying to get your attention. Mm. And then back to the other hung by the tongue, back to what you're, what you're feeding yourself in terms of entertainment, in terms of like your news intake and all of that stuff. I mean, that's what's coming out. That, yeah. That's what you're going to, that's what you're going to embody. And that's what I'm trying to, I'm working on a lot of that stuff that you enumerated just then about taking care of yourself, community, wellness, and all that stuff. That's what I'm, I'm starting to feel really good about the intersection of like my old, you know, old career, which is what I knew I was going to be on the planet for. Like I knew I was supposed to do the decathlon. Like my body's built for it. I can do this. It's we're, we're doing it right. I'm in the right town, right coach. We're doing it all. This is awesome. And trying to find what the next decathlon is for me. And it's, it's funny enough. It's, it's in that kind of decathlon format. There's a, there's like, there's 10 pillars. There's 10 things that you can do a little bit of every day to be whole, to be well, and to, again, on a journey of mastery. Mm. It has nothing to do with just being the best, you know, the best running decathlete. You want to be the best overall decathlete. How do we, how do we build a holistic profile of, a, of an adult, fully functioning adult that's doing the best that they can in all of these different areas? And you don't have to be the best in anything. You just got to be trying to get better in each mm-hmm. of the things. Yeah. I love it. Uh, where is that, where's that at? Is it, is it, are you working on launching that? Where's it at as far as a business, this next thing? I know you uh, mentioned it's, uh, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. We've, I'm raising money on it currently. We've, we've got enough, like it's, it's not, you know, it's not oversubscribed or anything like that, but there's enough to get everything going. And it's every day I, I drop in and I work on, you know, the manifesto and I work on like the nitty gritty of like, of all of those pillars, there's 10, there's kind of 10 things. And, um, over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've developed quite a, a few Excel skills. And so I've created a game and it's a dashboard of, of, of counting and inputs of, of how you're taking care of yourself in each of the 10 pillars. And it ultimately produces this aggregate score. So there's wow. a gamification and like a leaderboard of, like if you and I were going to do it and we're both wearing like an aura ring or we're both wearing whoop or whatever, so we can count calories and steps there, mm-hmm. that's part of the wellness thing. And then there's checking in meditatively and there's giving yourself, giving yourself medals, giving, how did I do today overall here? How did I sleep? How did, what was my nutrition? Um, and there's, you get scores. Like I have mm-hmm. an algorithm that can pump out a score based on your, you know, vegetable intake, red meat intake, water, alcohol, all that stuff produces this number. And there's, that's this, I've been doing it on myself for about two months or so and seeing like, okay, oh, whoa, my score went up. I, why did it go up? And, and trying to figure that out, gamify. Dope. Yeah. And so you're going to be able to compete not only with yourself and like your past you know, habits and seeing that, that groove go up, but also mm. compete with friends. Is this going to be like an app or how, how do you vision it? I have built out. I have a meeting later this week. There's another local company called Fit Rankings that my buddy Pat, Pat Hitchens started, and they aggregate all this data from every wearable, like Apple Health, 
uh, Fitbit, Garmin, all that stuff. And they can, they have the API for all of that stuff. And so we're oh. going to, we're going to work with them and his team to figure out if it's an app or a, or a web-based portal or something like that. Cool. But yeah, right now it's, it's, it's super exciting. It's Dude, like I'm really excited cool. for you, man. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely keep me posted on that, how I can be involved. And then, you know, just as it comes live, like I'd love to share it with, you know, my community and, and obviously all the listeners on this, cause I think it'd be something that they would want to know about. Man, that'd be rad. I'm still, I'm pulling in people that we're going to run the beta with, you know, for cool. six months and we do blood labs. We do all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a really, really fun practice. And then there's coaching on the side there's like kind of the next tier is that you get personal coaching from like exercise physiologists, coaching from myself, coaching from, you know, military veterans, all that kind of stuff. So Dope. yeah, man, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm again, haven't felt like this in a very, very long time. Cool. It feels like it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, for those of you that are premium members, we're going to have Trey for uh, some of the bonus material on these extended episodes, talk about some stuff that you can do in your life right now that will help you, you know, come back to yourself and get your power back and really show up and start, you know, healing your mind, body and soul so that you can navigate this unknown. If you guys want to check that out, there's a link in the show notes. It's $7 a month. You can be a part of the inner circle community around this podcast. Really excited about that growing community. We're offering a bunch of content like bonus uh, episodes, solo casts, and you can ask me anything. So go check that out. Trey, I really appreciate you taking the time, brother. Um, any, where can people find you? Any, anytime. Anytime. We'll definitely do this again, man. I feel like there's so much more we can talk about. Jeez, we kind of covered yeah. a lot. And I want to, yeah, I want to hear more about your career. I want to hear more about like your transition and your time, like beyond just like your solo stuff, like what mm -hmm. you would, what you, what you can share with me. Yeah. Like, maybe you could, maybe we could flip roles and you could host the, the podcast yes. and, you know, interview me. Yes. That'd be awesome. Uh, yeah. For myself right now, the, the stuff I'm doing right now doesn't really have any kind of presence, but I'm at Trey Hardy in literally every platform. Like every, you can even Google him best athlete every, in the world. <laughs> every, and he comes up. Look, yeah, Google like best athlete slash like terrible dad working on getting better. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, just at, at Trey Hardy on like Twitter and Instagram. I don't, I don't go on Facebook. Um, but yeah, reach out. You got questions. I, I like admittingly don't check those direct messages often, but when I do, I'll, I give you thoughtful answers and, and just, just be patient. So, mm, brother, I really appreciate you taking the time. Nice. Thanks for having me, Joe. It was awesome. Yeah, and thanks everybody for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. <laughs>